Old Testament lesson this morning is found in Joshua chapter 22. We're reading portions of this long chapter. First reading verses 1 through 6 and then 10 through 20. If you'll please follow along with me. Joshua chapter 22. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all of his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh and the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel and turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, Pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would give us your spirit, that you would lead us into understanding and into all truth according to the promise that you gave us through your son. And so speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. 
In September of 1783, King George III sent his representatives to Paris to meet with the delegation of the United States of America, the newly formed country. And they were signing a peace treaty that brought an end to the American Revolution. The newly formed United States on the other side of that peace treaty was now free from British rule. But there were many questions that were unanswered. And as a student of political science, I was introduced to those and even in reviewing political history with my children in their civics class in eighth grade, I'm reminded of all the complications that were part of the political system between 1783 and 1787. It was a hot mess, you could say. There were tensions and rivalries. There were undecided things. There were historical problems already emerging. These four years under the Articles of Confederation, that was the current constitution at that point, was a difficult time. A notable rebellion broke out in Massachusetts that threatened the whole union. So in 1787, Constitutional Convention was called in Philadelphia. And so representatives were sent and the deliberations were held in strict secrecy. No one knew what was happening. But then it was announced that the deliberations had concluded that something had been established. And so very famously, Ben Franklin exits Independence Hall and a woman named Mrs. Powell, she asked him this question, well doctor, What have we got, a republic or a monarchy? With no hesitation whatsoever, Franklin responded this. He said, a republic, if you can keep it. Franklin's famous for his quips and his quotes, but this is tremendously sage advice when we're talking about freedom of any sort. Freedom, if you can keep it. Because this is the situation for the church, because today we're not talking about American politics, but rather what we're looking at is the freedom of the church, the inheritance that God gives to the church through Jesus Christ, that he gives us a tremendous freedom that we are then charged to keep, to preserve, to hold on to. And honestly, the church has always struggled to do so. If you think through your New Testament, you can find this readily apparent in the early days of the church as the apostles go out and preach the gospel and establish those early congregations. In Corinth, you find the church turning away from its freedom, enslaving itself to other versions of Jesus, denying the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. They were not holding fast to their inheritance. And then you could arrive in Galatia where there was an opposite problem where actually the gospel was being supplemented and added to, that yes, you were to believe in Jesus, to be right with God, but you were also to observe the law, that if you observe the law, that would then make you righteous in front of God. The church is always under threat of not keeping its freedom. And what we have today in front of us in Joshua 22 is a charge a charge for the church to keep its freedom. We have to keep it. And the question practically becomes how? How do we keep this great freedom that God has given to us in Jesus Christ and all that he's done in fulfilling every one of his promises to forgive our sins, to grant us the spirit, to grant us the assurance of the world to come? How do we hold fast 
to that freedom. There's two things that we find quickly in Joshua 22. First, we must devote ourselves to preserving the things of first importance. If you'll follow with me in verses 10 and 11, we discover the crisis that happens just after Israel has completed the conquest. Last week we saw in chapter 21 that every one of God's promises were fulfilled, that nothing he had said did not come to pass. And now that Israel was resting in the land, we have the first crisis, turmoil, political dysfunction that happens here in Israel. The two and a half tribes that lived on the eastern side of the Jordan, that was where they were given their inheritance. They had fought all the way through the book of Joshua with the people of Israel. And then Joshua releases them. He sends them back home. And on their way home, they construct an altar. And Israel hears of this and is disturbed. We find this in verse 10, and when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, these are the two and a half tribes, built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. Now Israel then gathers together and they are ready to go address the situation because you see the law had made it explicitly clear If you were to look in Deuteronomy 12, there was to be one sanctuary with one altar. That this altar was that which foreshadowed the coming mediator who would make sacrifice for the people of God. And so there were not to be a proliferation of altars. And also because this altar was built on the edge of the land, Israel feared that the two and a half tribes were already blending together elements of the worship of the true God with other gods, what we call syncretism. And so there was a lot at stake in this moment. And so what we find in verse 13 is that Israel sends a delegation. A famous man in the Bible named Phineas. he was known as a prosecutor of those who had committed idolatry. Find this in the book of Numbers in which he prevents those from intermarrying with people who didn't share faith in the true God. And so he goes east of the Jordan, along with the delegation, and he confronts the people of these eastern tribes. Follow with me in verse 16, we find the confrontation. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith? This is a phrase that has a strong connotation, it's turning away. What is this turning away that you have committed against the God of Israel? in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar in rebellion against the Lord. They saw that everything was at stake, that the freedoms, the inheritance that God had just given to them was now being sacrificed. They were turning back from it. Phineas comes and lays the charge. And what's important for us to perceive here about what's happening is that Israel had a vested interest in the common worship and life of all of the tribes. And that here they thought the tribes were heading into idolatry. And so they saw that disaster was ahead because this was the very first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And so they found these two and a half tribes were forsaking their freedom and breaking the very 
basic law of God. And so they go out to confront them. They were invested in the unity of the church by preserving the things of first importance. And this is God's continued charge to the church today. That we must preserve that doctrinal health. We must preserve the things of first importance, those things that are essential to the claims of the gospel. But when we look at this, there's a couple ways that it goes wrong in the church today. Just consider these two. First, there's a theological laziness that leads us to be indifferent to the things of first importance. That is, we can just simply be overcome by a malaise, and so we begin to hear things that don't quite match and don't sound right, but we say, well, you know, he has a good heart. He means well. He's motivated by the right things. He was educated by this place or that place. And after all, there's a lot of people attending, so it can't be that bad. We tend to dress up our apathy and our indifference in all kinds of ways. But at the end of the day, there can be a laziness that takes hold in which we don't then actively preserve the things that are crucial and essential and central to the gospel. Here, Phineas is going after what is very core to what it meant for the Old Testament church to worship God, that there wasn't going to be a proliferation of gods and there weren't going to be other altars, that other altars would indicate idolatry, but rather the people were to approach through burnt sacrifice and, and peace offerings. They were to come to God through the one altar at Shiloh at the tabernacle. And friends, for us today, what that means is that we have to preserve that one altar, which is, of course, the cross of our Lord Jesus. And anything that begins to denigrate or detract from that and take away from the sufficiency of Jesus, anything that adds to it and says there are other ways, this is what is a threat. This is what is taking away from the sufficiency of the gospel. This steals away the freedom of the church and this is what we are to preserve. That one altar, that central shrine who is Jesus Christ himself. This is what Phineas goes after and this is what we are to go after as well. We're not to be slothful and lazy about it. But there's a second way that this goes wrong in the church. There's also a theological precision that leads us to make every issue one of first importance. Note that Phineas was going after the first commandment, but there is a tendency in the church, and especially for those of, of my particular class, the clergy, that if things become important, then everything is important. And this is not what scripture is saying here, that we're not to press every particular point as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that the Corinthians were not to leave behind the things of first importance. And of course, he walks through different matters in chapters 8 and 10 where, he's saying, where he says these things are indifferent. And it doesn't matter here, but just think through it. But then he says there are the things of first importance that the church can't compromise on. But every issue is not equally important. And when the theological precision picks up in a congregation, 
you ultimately find that people begin to bite and devour one another and destroy each other. I once asked a friend, because he had confessed, he said, well, I used to be one of these precisionists. And I used to find that every cause that I adopted, every new cause that I adopted became my reason for existence. And I would use that like an ax against other people. I said, well, how did, how did God work through that in your life? He said, well, somebody came after me in the same way. <laughs> they had their ax to grind with me and they destroyed me. A few years ago, I was working with a fellow minister on a, a situation in, the, in our presbytery in which we were working through our denomination's book of church order and there were some requirements in the book of church order surrounding the ordination of candidates. And there was one debatable manner about how to apply it and so I expressed my opinion about this one little small matter about preaching of a sermon. And I said, well, I think this could be done in this matter and he responded to me. He said, you see, you're on the path to liberalism. If you're willing to violate the book of church order here, then you're willing to violate it everywhere. And if I can't trust you at this point, then I can't trust you at any point. And I said, you know, it's, this is interesting. <laughs> because suddenly we've gone from the discussion of a particular detail of application out of the book of church order, where now I don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. <laughs> How does this happen? And friends, it is that kind of environment exactly that God is not encouraging. That the devotion to the purity of the church's creed, the devotion to the church's belief is not where everything becomes equally important. But what it is is a devotion to the things of first importance, to the things of keeping our hearts pure and having no other masters of believing in our Lord Jesus and trusting in him in the sufficiency of his sacrifice, of the hope of the world to come and all that he will do for us and that God will fulfill every word that he's ever spoken. It is the essentials of our faith. This is what we are to preserve. And this is what we are to keep, to fight for, to work for. And this is what we find happening in Joshua 22 with the delegation from Phineas. But the second thing that we see that we're to be devoted to here is that we're to be devoted to one another in love. You find that Israel had these deep concerns about what was happening across the Jordan River. These two tribes they thought were making idolatrous sacrifices. And so they go out and confront them because they were concerned for the spiritual life and health of the church. You note that it wasn't about their own personal ambition, it wasn't about their standing. Phineas was not trying to become high priest. He is simply sent at no personal gain along with representatives of the tribes to confront. Reminded of the words of the book of Galatians in chapter six, verse one, brother, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And this is the humility that these transactions are to take place in. That there's much burden put on the one who confronts as the one who receives it. That both are to come humbly, both watching themselves, both considering what is said and what is the offense. And so there's a confrontation done in the spirit of gentleness out of care and concern. But I want you to note something about what happens here. 
because the devotion to one another doesn't stop simply at confrontation. Verse 19 Phineas says, but now if the land of your possession is unclean, that is, the land was made unclean by their idolatrous offerings, he says, pass over into the Lord's land, which what did that refer to? The land of Canaan where they all had their possessions. So pass into our possessions where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. This is revolutionary. Do you see what he's saying? He says, look, if you're polluted and you're starting to worship other gods, then what do you need to do? Pick up your things and come back across the Jordan and take land from us in order to live where the land is pure and clean and devoted to one God. And this is the ethic of self-sacrifice. That in going and confronting, he hasn't then just left them to their own devices, but he makes an accommodation in which he desires to help them, to assist them, that they be returned, that they be restored, that they be renewed. And this is what always has to be present inside of Christian confrontation, reconciliation, and mediation, is that there be this sacrificial ethic. This, of course, is just the call of our Lord Jesus, who is the chief reconciler himself who's willing to pay great price to buy the church for God and to bring them back and reconcile us and make us whole and one with him. And so this is how we're to conduct our business as well in being devoted to one another in love. But then there is yet another step, merely not mere confrontation, not just being willing to sacrifice, but then there also is a willingness to listen. Verses 21 through 29, we didn't read. But what happens after the confrontation of Phineas is that there is then a response that comes from these two and a half tribes. And what they explain, if you were to follow along, is they said, we built this altar not to make sacrifices, but rather we built this altar as a monument, a monument that reminds us that our worship is owed to the true and living God at the altar in Shiloh. And also, this monument is to remind you that these two and a half tribes east of the Jordan have a vested interest in Israel. You see, they were scared. They thought after Joshua passed along that everyone may forget about them and they may be divested from Israel. And so they built this altar. Follow with me in verses 26 and 27. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord." And so the confrontation is answered and the charge of idolatry, they were then rebutting. Gently and humbly, they were saying, no, that's not our motivation in building the monument. But then look how Phineas responds. In verse 30, when Phineas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. 
And suddenly, what had been a deep concern for the things of first importance, they thought there was idolatry, Phineas is reasoned with, and it's clear to him that this was not a thing of first importance, that this altar was not intended for worship, that they were not breaking the commandment that was enshrined in Deuteronomy 12. And actually in Deuteronomy 13, whenever there was a concern with another Israelite, there was to be a trial, there was a prescriptive way in which that was to be pursued. And this is what Phineas has done. And God calls us and demands us that we be reasonable and that we listen and that we truly search it out. And we not just decide that someone has broken God's law and shattered it simply because they disagree with our first glance at it. But rather there is to be this reasonable procedure. And this is what devotion in love looks like. It looks like confrontation. It looks like gentle, humble confrontation. It looks like sacrifice and being willing to restore someone and walk with them on the other side where it even cost us something. And it also looks like listening, that our initial concern may not be accurate, that we may be off, we could be wrong, and that we would even rejoice to be wrong because we don't want what we think to be true. And this is why Phineas returns to all the congregation gathered at Shiloh and says, guys, no problem. The essential things are intact. This is what it looks like to keep the freedom that God has given to the church. Is that we take this charge to protect the things of first importance. And we do so with humility. That we're willing to confront. That we do so in a loving way. That we consider these things extremely important, hold them in high regard, but in holding them in high regard, we don't hold ourselves in too much high regard, that we don't confuse those two issues, and that we go and we're willing to listen, and we do so because the church's life and health and vitality and mission is what is at stake. Can you keep it? Can we keep all that God has promised to us? That's the question in front of us. And so we want to be devoted to him, to preserving the purity of the gospel. And we want to be fully devoted to one another in love. Let's keep it. Let's ask God for his help. Let's pray. Father, we know that we are not tremendously different than the people of Israel that they were prone to wonder from you, and so are we, that we get distracted and drawn away, and we can be drawn to other gods. Things can become enticing to us. And Lord, we need your help. We ask that you would preserve us, and that we as a body, that our own denomination as a church would know how to preserve the things of first importance, to hold fast to them. The doctrine of the gospel, our Lord Jesus, this one central altar where the sacrifice for sins is made. And will we not allow anything that detracts from that or pulls away or finds the offering of Jesus insufficient? We hold firm and fast to that. All that he has taught and all that he instructs us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to do so in a humble and gentle, loving and sacrificial way. 
And maybe we be, we be willing to do the self-examination that this requires, that we listen. Lord, this is a high task and it demands much of us. And so keep us from the errors of laziness and precision. Protect us and guard us and lead us into all truth. And this morning we also pray for your work all around the world as you have given the claims of the gospel to the nations of the earth and commissioned your church to preach your word throughout all those nations. And Lord, we're grateful for all of our ministry partners who give themselves to this work in advancing the claims of our Lord Jesus. And we particularly this morning pray for the city rescue mission and all the work that they do to care for those who are on the margins of life in the city of Jacksonville. We thank you for the work with the homeless and the addicted, for all those in the Life Builders program, and God, we pray that you would rescue and renew and restore these brothers and sisters, that they would hold fast to the gospel, believing and trusting in Jesus, and know that he alone is the one who can save and help them in their need. And Lord, would you restore and rebuild their lives on the other side of the program, Would you provide for them good jobs and restore families? Renew them in communities that support and encourage them. Provide for all the needs of City Rescue Mission. Embolden their staff. Give them courage, strength, and power and provide for them in every way. And this morning we also pray for our daughter congregations. We give thanks for them and the witness they give to the gospel all throughout the city of Jacksonville. Christ Church East and Christ Church in town. And God, we ask that you would strengthen their pastors, Keith and Dave, that you embolden their elders, inspire them with a spirit of faithfulness. And Lord, that you would work in their congregations, that your word would be alive and true and that it would spread and run through our city. Provide for all of their needs. And may they be a city set upon a hill, a light shining in darkness. This morning we also are mindful of our members who are suffering poor health. During the holiday season, we know that this is all the more frustrating and difficult and lonely. We ask that you would be present to them, that you would draw near and comfort them, that you raise up the downtrodden and distressed and comfort the lonely as you promised. We also ask God that you'd heal them in body and mind as they suffer their distress. And so we pray for Beverly Quine. We pray for Branson Bishop. We pray for Norma Hughes as she awaits surgery. We pray for Karen Ferguson as she recovers from knee replacement surgery. And we pray for Hector Harima and Corky Rogers. And we ask that you be at work in these men's lives. Lord, we pray for your presence and your power to be known in each of these situations. And Father, we're mindful this morning as well, giving thanks to you for the children of our church and especially new additions. We give thanks for Riley Catherine Webb, born last week to Reed and Kylie, for this little girl gift to Reed and Kylie. And we ask God that you would preserve her and protect her. Be her defender and shield all of her days. And would she grow up to call upon our Lord Jesus? And would she know him and serve him? 
And Lord, this is our prayer for all of our children and all of our youth. We give thanks for each of them. As they have been set apart to you for your service, Lord, we ask that they would grow up in faith, never knowing days apart from Jesus, remembering him always and gladly serving him, not knowing any reason to turn outside of him for life and meaning and purpose. And so may they be deeply fulfilled and satisfied as they grow up here in this place. We're thankful for all your many blessings, all that you have given us, the great inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ. Help us to keep it. May we be a faithful and loving congregation. All these things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.